1: Welcome to the July edition of The Compliance Life. In The Compliance Life, I take a look at the journey to and sometimes from the CCO chair of an individual in compliance. In the month of July, I visit with Joe Burke. I've known Joe for some time. He's most recently the chief ethics and compliance officer at Quest Software. It's a fascinating journey into compliance, From a career that began in a White Shoe New York law firm to Kentucky Fried Chicken and to Dell. In this episode two, Joe moves to Dell Technologies and into compliance.
0: The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a chief compliance officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and
0: then we'll be right back with Audrey Harris on The Compliance Life.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of The Compliance Life, this month featuring Joe Burke. First of all, Joe, welcome back.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Tom.
1: So, Joe, we uh, ended uh, Episode 1, our last episode, with you at – Uh, PepsiCo in Louisville Kentucky Uh, what was your next move
0: well I moved down to Texas after Kentucky I had been thinking for some time that you know I was in the fast food business I'd done just about everything I could in that in-house environment Uh, and I knew this was uh, late mid mid 90s I knew uh, that we were heading into some pretty expansive growth in the computer field and so I looked for a software job uh, I ended up not in software at all, but going to Dell Computer down in Austin, Texas, uh, and jumping headlong into one of the fastest growing companies in history at the time, uh, and, uh, and, you know, down in Austin.
1: So uh, Dell Computers, founded by Michael Dell, uh, I would say an icon of Texas business, uh, what was the, some of the differences you found moving from uh, PepsiCo and uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken down to what I always perceived, the go-go Dell, uh,
0: which never stopped. PepsiCo in particular, and Kentucky Fried Chicken as the subsidiary of PepsiCo, was a very established organization. There had been so many uh, lawyers and executives and named people that, um, you know, admirable uh, people to pattern yourself after at that organization, and it was a very, very strong operation. When I got to Dell. I, I had this recurring sense of, uh, you know, jumping from a freight train to a surfboard and the water was rough. And I just, it took me a very long time uh, at Dell to get a sense of stability and to feel like uh, I could be successful there because things were moving so, so quickly. Uh, we, I, I went there as a uh, contract negotiator, a uh, contract manager. Uh, I negotiated tremendously large contracts compared to what I'd been doing at Kentucky Fried Chicken, obviously, and, uh, you know, deals with Oracle that were in the tens of millions of dollars at the time for software. And it was really mind-blowing to me um, that I had gone from a very old nationally known brand to a very current, trendy, competitive battle with, Compaq at the time. This was uh, 1996. Compaq was still in existence. Um, We didn't think much of HP before that merger, Um, but there were headline stories uh, on transactions and competitions and disputes that I had worked on, and it was the first time in my career where I really felt like, wow, uh, you know, this is something that is being talked about, is being Uh, written about and it's a little bit of history going on with the growth that Dell was going through right then.
1: What was your, uh, you mentioned you did contracts at Dell initially. What was your progression in the legal department?
0: Well, I had been doing contracts for about um, 18 months. I'd been working with a number of the lawyers in the legal department who supported me uh, or ended up signing the contracts or, or approving them for final signature. And what happened was, Dell was growing so fast at the time that they couldn't get their sales... I was doing a procurement contracts, by the way. They couldn't get their sales contracts completed with some of the bigger vendors at the time. And so uh, they were casting around looking for lawyers who had done lots of negotiation. Uh, I had impressed one or two of the lawyers in the legal department, and so I was recruited from procurement to jump over to the legal department not as a contract manager, but as counsel for the global business. At the time, Dell was approaching five specific, globally uh, situated companies. Uh, I know that uh, GE was one of those, we hadn't signed a contract with them, but they were a big target of ours, Um, Verizon uh, was one of them, Uh, and there were a couple of others, I just can't remember. EDS was one of them, if we go back that far. Um And so we had an entire business segment that was targeted to these five customers and trying to uh, expand that into a global business, which eventually ended up being the Global 500 before I left Dell. Um, and I was sort of there at the ground floor. so it was that was the transition. It was just they were just looking for people who knew how to negotiate big contracts. I'd done a fair amount of it at the law firm, I'd done a fair amount of it at KFC. And so when I got to Dell and was doing it in procurement, um, you know, I, I felt pretty comfortable in that role.
1: So, how did you move over to compliance while you were at Dell?
0: Well, I spent a number of years as a commercial lawyer at Dell, and I worked for—I counted it up one day—it was over a dozen different general managers that I had supported as a general corporate, uh, com, um, a general corporate lawyer. Um, and then I think after I'd been there at least a dozen years and I'd spent some time in Canada um, you know, working as an expat there, um, I really ran out of things to do. Dell was running into an, uh, uh, an era of sort of bottleneck in the legal department. They, we'd hired so many people like me in the late 90s, early 2000s when growth was so expansive. And I really didn't see a path for myself to the VP level and at that time um, the VP who was in charge of compliance we were just starting to put together a a specific compliance organization said Joe you know we're you probably aren't going to be a VP on the legal side but here's this opportunity over in compliance are you interested and at the time like a whole lot of the rest of the world I thought of compliance as boy that sounds like kind of a boring topic but let me see what's there and I'm telling you, Tom, I fell into the most fun that I've had in my career. We built an FCPA program that had been kind of a paper sort of training-based program globally for a couple of years. Um, We redid our trade compliance. We looked at some uh, gray market issues and I, I, I traveled the world. I did investigations around the world. It was the most exciting time of all of the time I spent at Dell. So the transition was almost one of those consolation prizes. You know, look, you're you're probably at the end of your tenure at Dell. Do you want to try something new? And I said, well, sure, let's give it a try. And and it was just a blast. I I really enjoyed my time there.
1: Jill, in a prior episode, you talked about your work at PepsiCo and Kentucky Fried Chicken. And although you didn't know him personally, literally the presence of uh, Colonel Harlan Sanders in the company, in the franchisees, and really almost on a day-to-day basis. Can I maybe ask you that same question about Michael Dell? Was he involved? Did you interact with Michael? Did he know what compliance was and what you were trying to accomplish and did he support your efforts?
0: Yeah, Michael was, uh, you know, there were so many great things about working for a company uh, with a CEO whose name was on the door. Um, I I really believe that one of the things that made us as lawyers at Dell much more comfortable about our positions was, that he had his name on the door, he was a guy we could trust, we knew he was going to make the right, he never worried about Michael uh, making the wrong decision on an ethical issue, it's just that, that I will carry to to the end of my days. People have a lot of opinions about Michael, he was an ethical, reliable leader and he took his role very very seriously. I will also recount to you that in my first year there I'll never forget walking around Round Rock 1, or actually it was Round Rock 2, shortly after it was built, uh, I was in a, a men's room of course and you know, looking in the mirror and saw a guy in the men's room and I thought, well that's a familiar face and then I walked out and about 10 minutes later, that was Michael Dell, it was the first time I ever met him. He was simply walking around, he was the CEO of Dell at the time and he's walking around and you know, um, he was always there and I think he was a big part, he spoke to the legal department two or three times a year and in specific, at specific events. He was always supportive of what we were doing, but he was also always giving of his time to, you know, we had long open question sessions after he would give a little pep talk to us about what a great job we were doing. And he answered every question. I mean, this is a bunch of lawyers, and people had questions about options, about what's going on with HP, about, you know, whatever it was. And Michael, of all the CEOs that I've worked for, Michael was the most patient in recognizing the talent he had, his, his reliance on that talent, and then wanting to make sure that everybody understood not only what his answer to this question was, but did we all understand the direction we're going and what we are about at Dell, what we are trying to get done. Um, he was very, very involved with day-to-day operation at every level of the organization.
1: Joe, when you built out the FCPA compliance program or, or perhaps uh, re-engineered it, uh, as I recall, it was a time before we had the formal 10 Hallmarks of an Effective Compliance Program, and you used the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines as your guide. I was wondering if you could say a few words about the sentencing guidelines, sort of how we used those in the first decade of uh, this century before we got the 10 Hallmarks formulation in 2012.
0: When I got started in compliance, and when we looked at FCPA in particular, we looked at those sentencing guidelines and we thought, well, you know, this this is good guidance, right? This gives us a platform for uh, some sense of authority for what we're doing. Um, and so, I, I you know, the, the best way to think about it, I guess, is that when you look at each company's approach to anti-corruption in particular, the way to assure yourselves that... You're not going to run afoul of those guidelines, is to know your business inside and out, and to take the most tailored, the most uh, direct approach possible to build the kind of programs that are going to be effective in your organization. I know that kind of it's a lot of sort of formulaic words, but what we did was we sat down with outside counsel. And we said, what do we think are the areas where we have the most risk? And this was before enterprise risk management was a part of everybody's operations. Where do we think we're going to have trouble? We cross borders every day with uh, shipments of of computers. Um, We hire people everywhere around the world. We do business with governments all around the world. And so we focused on those areas where we knew our business had some potential exposure. And we tried to build training, we tried to build documentation. We tried to look at it from the standpoint of what are the guidelines trying to tell us? They're trying to tell us there are things you can do to reduce your overall exposure. How do we adapt that to the way that we do business? So um, you know, that has become the formula for everybody now and I don't think we were doing anything out of the ordinary there. But the difficulty was translating the guidelines which were very general, very directional into how do we do what we need to do? That was the big eye-opener for me. There wasn't a formula. There wasn't a paint-by-number, let's go get this program, let's go get that program. It's what does your business look like? How do you want to address the things that the sentencing guidelines require?
1: Joe, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode. I hope our listeners will join us for our next episode where you step into the CCO chair. But before we leave, I was wondering if our listeners... Uh, had any, have any questions or wanted to get in touch with you about any of the things we've talked about in this episode, what would be the best way for them to do so? Best way to reach
0: me is on LinkedIn. That is my connection to the world these days, Tom.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this Thank episode you. of The Compliance Life. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again.